I honestly could go home after that. That's good. Yeah, that song just, there's two songs that break me up. It's The Great I Am and Amazing Grace. Those two, they just do me in every time. Um, I want to ask you to go to Matthew 25, please, if you have a Bible with you, if maybe electronically or hard copy. Uh, if you're following along at home, it'd be a good time to load down the notes if you haven't already done that. If, and if you don't have the notes in the auditorium, you can get them back by the pillar back there, or you can get them from the QR code that's in the little uh, item in front of you, in the pocket in front of you, in the seat. Hit that QR code, and you can load the notes down if you want them. Um, I, I honestly feel just incredibly unworthy to go through what we're going to go through this morning in light of just declaring the great I am. And so I just need to recenter myself. I'm going to ask you if you would pray with me that we could just eliminate all the distractions, whatever hurt is on your heart right now, eliminate the distractions that we'll ask God for so you can focus on what he wants to speak. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for powerful worship and for the opportunity to declare a truth. You are the great I am. We're willing to say that out loud, and we're not ashamed of it. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. And so we ask for that reason, that you would focus us right now like a laser, God. Put us on point with your word. Allow your Holy Spirit to speak. Teach us now. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name. And all God's people said, amen. Um, if you're new to New Hope, we've been working through the parables for um, 18 months, roughly. October of 2019, in that range is when we started. Of all the parables are complete up to this point. Today is the last one. So if you walked in on this one, we can catch you up. You can go to the website and catch up all the other ones if you want. And there's books in the back that might help you. Parable books one, two, three, and four. This, remarkably though, this parable is not technically a parable. It's got a parable element to it, but what it really is, is a glimpse of the future. From this point in this passage that's going to talk about sheep and goats, and it's going to lay it out pretty clearly for us, when it ends, from this point forward, the disciples go out and begin preparing for the Last Supper. They get the upper room ready. It's two days before Jesus' crucifixion. This is the last thing He has to say in what we would call a public fashion in the sense of teaching, and he's got the disciples on the Mount of Olives right in front of him. Today we have the privilege of looking over Matthew's shoulder. Matthew is one of those few privileged ones to actually sit there on the Mount of Olives. And he heard the very words of God, and he penned the very words of God which you have in front of you this morning. And what we are granted is a preview of a real scene, of a real future event. And it's a scene of God's judgment seat, commonly called the judgment of the nations. You'll see why in just a moment. Now, we're going to treat this a little different than what we have in the past. Instead of just going verse by verse, working through it, before we do that, I'm going to ask you to look with me at the entire passage first. So Matthew 25, let's look at this long explanation. Matthew 25 starts with verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Verse 45, then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Bible is very, very clear. All sin is known to God, which causes the hairs on the back of our neck to stand up a little bit, a little bit of a shuddering. All sin is known to God, and the reality that all sin is known to God means all sin must be punished. In the Old Testament, Moses wrote this. He said, be sure, Numbers 32, be sure your sin will find you out. In the New Testament, Paul writes a very similar thing when he says in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That means judgment for sin is inevitable. So no sin is exempt from God's judgment, even, and this is going to cause you to do a double breath, but just bear with me on this. No sin is exempt from God's judgment. Even the sin of Christians is not exempt from God's wrath and justice. As you're drawing in an extra breath and you're thinking, what? what, what wait, what? Hear that again. It's a biblical truth. No sin, not even the sin of Christians, is exempt from God's wrath and justice. I hope you have your amens on this morning because you're going to need them. The amazing, stunning privilege that we have as Christians is that the punishment for all our sin is placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Good, you didn't need any coaching there. That's stunning. That's amazing that all sin is known by God and all sin must be punished. But the amazing, stunning thing is, for a Christ follower, for a Christian, all my sin, all my guilt, all of it is nailed to an old rugged cross 2,000 years ago where Jesus made atonement for the sin of anyone who will put his, their belief in him. Anyone on this planet. 
If you will believe in him, and it doesn't matter the magnitude of your sin, if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ. But for those who refuse what Jesus offers, they have to bear their own penalty. They have to bear their own penalty for their sin, which as you're going to see in this passage means eternal damnation. It's hard, hard truth. And the warning is stated over and over and over and over and over again. I heard a pastor say to me this last week, I've discovered the secret for having a church of 15,000 people. And I'm waiting for him to say, what? Like how? And he said, just don't ever teach that stuff. Because people don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that all sin is punished. They want to just hear that God is love, 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 and there's no result, no punishment for sin. But the Bible says those who refuse Jesus have to bear their own penalty for sin. If, if you're identifying with the fact that God is love, hear this component. Because God is love and God is pure love, you are a reflection of that. Because God is pure love, a characteristic of pure love is there is the enormous desire to protect from harm. Check it in your own life. The thing that you love most is the thing you desire to protect most. You'll go out of your way to protect that one or that thing. Because God is pure love, the characteristic of pure love is the enormous desire to protect from harm. Jesus speaks of judgment and his punishment for sin out of pure love because of his love. It's not his desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God loves, therefore he warns. And the greatest love warning that there is, is the warning of eternal damnation. He loves, therefore he warns. So let's enter into this with that mindset. Watch his first statement in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. So right away we see the one separating the sheep from the goats, one on the left, one on the right. That one is the Son of Man. And who is the Son of Man? That's Jesus. That means Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one who gets to judge whether or not a person enters into the kingdom or not. And that's very consistent with what you find in the Bible. Look with me on the screen. John 5, 22. Not even the Father judges anyone. This is Jesus making this statement. Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Now, the title, Son of Man, that He uses of Himself, and it's His favorite title while here on earth, He uses it over and over and over again. When you see the title, the Son of Man, what He's doing, He's affirming His incarnation. He's affirming His identity with mankind, that He became one of us. He's, in other words, identifying and affirming his humiliation, that God the Son became Jesus the man, that God the Son condescended to this planet in order to take on human form. So when you read it, you should immediately think of his condescension. And the title, Son of Man, is a profound contrast with the way that you will see him in the future when he comes in power and in great glory. The God of heaven who left the throne of glory to condescend to become man allowed himself in his first coming to show up as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. 
but in his second coming will be in great power when he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Apparently you need a little more coaching on the amen thing. When he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's a, that's a great truth, church. It's a great reality. Humble in the first coming, power in the second coming, in great glory. And what's he going to be doing? He's going to be sitting on his throne, and on that throne, he will reign over all the earth. And his first action from that reigning position is deciding who enters the kingdom. That Jesus is coming to render judgment should not amaze us. It should not cause us to marvel. What should cause us to marvel is his first coming, that he would condescend to become one of us, that he would come to offer salvation. The marvel is not that he will condemn, but rather that he first offered deliverance from sin. Move forward with me. Look at this statement in verse 31. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, I want to know more about that. If I'm, a, if I'm a person who studies the Bible or I want to know more about God, I want to know more about that throne. Well, I referred to it lightly last week when we were talking about the parable of the ten virgins. I referred to the reality that um, Isaiah said that when King Uzziah died, the, the earth was grieving, Israel specifically was grieving for the loss of their king, and God in response to that allowed Isaiah to have a vision of the true king, the great king. Isaiah chapter 6, he says, then I looked and I saw the king who was sitting on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. But just by mentioning that last week, individuals said, where is that found? Well, I'm going to put it on the screen for you this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Look with me at this statement. I want to see this with the same awe and wonder that Isaiah talks about. In the year that King Uzziah's, of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I told you, when I first walked up here, I just feel incredibly unworthy to even review this stuff with you. Isaiah said, I just didn't even want to speak. I'm just collapsed. Woe is me. I'm in the presence of God. How can I take this in with my eyes? Over the last few weeks, as we've walked through these last four parables, we've been reminded that Jesus used those four to announce the last days on planet Earth, what those final seven years would look like, what we called the Great Tribulation, when all the horrors of hell would be released upon this planet. But at the end of all that, as we saw last week, at the end of those seven years, then Jesus appears. And he appears in the second coming. And lest there be mis any misunderstanding about how he's going to come, even two days later when he's standing before the Sanhedrin on trial for his life, just before the crucifixion, he announces how he's going to return. The high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether or not you are the Christ, the Son of God. Watch Jesus' response, Matthew 26. 
The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Even at his trial, he's reminding everyone, I'm coming back and this is how I'm coming back. This passage in Matthew 25 speaks of the beginning of the millennial kingdom at the end of the seven years of tribulation. And it speaks very specifically about a group of people who will be here on planet earth at that period of time. And it talks very specifically about where Jesus is going to carry out these actions from. Specifically, not just on planet earth, but in Israel. And not just in Israel, but in the city of Jerusalem. Let me show you how you know that. Watch with me on the screen. This is when the angel is speaking to Mary when she's about to become pregnant with God the Son. Luke 1, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his, father's Dave, of his father David. Where is the throne of his father David? King David is in Israel. King David's throne is in Jerusalem, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And that's not poetry, and that's not imaginative language. He's speaking of reality there, a promise of God. It's a physical presence. David's throne is in Jerusalem. David's throne is in Israel. That's where Christ will reign on earth when he establishes what's known as the millennial kingdom. At New Hope, we teach that Jesus' return will be physical, literal, physical, in bodily form, not figurative, not imaginatively, but physically coming back to this planet, a real historical event. We know that because God's Word can be trusted when it speaks of literal, factual events. So let me show you a literal reference to Jesus' return in a factual way. He's been crucified in this setting. He's been resurrected on earth for 40 days, and he's about to ascend to the Father. And as he's ascending, watch Acts chapter 1, verse 11. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. It's an angel from God coming and speaking to the disciples saying, and there were 500 of them present saying, he's coming back again, and this is how he's coming back. And when he returns, he will reign on a literal throne over the people of this earth. But also, as if peeling back the sky and the east is not enough, we're told that accompanying him will be this massive host of heaven. Look with me on the screen at this. We're speaking specifically of angels. The Lord Jesus, 2 Thessalonians 1, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Or Matthew 24, 29, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels. And that brings us all the way forward to this moment when the nations appear before the throne of the living God. And God has to decide what to do. 
It says this in verse 32, then all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. As I study this, I've come to this conclusion that apparently the judgment happens just as instantaneously as his appearing. It doesn't seem to be any break whatsoever. It's just instantaneous. He begins the judgment. And just as with what we saw last week with the parable of the ten virgins, when the groom comes, the door will be shut and there will be no more opportunity. So Jesus is trying to help us understand what's going to happen in that moment. And he says, gathered before his throne will be all the ethnos. You see this word in your notes this morning. You see it on the screen. Every race, every tribe, what the Greek language uses as a description, all the different habit forms of this planet. Every single individual who's alive during this period of time will gather before the throne, the population of the planet. That's speaking of every single person alive. Now, many people will have already entered eternity by that point. I believe the Bible teaches that all believers will be caught up in a rapture prior to that. But during the time of the tribulation, there will be many people who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. However, during the tribulation, there will be massive numbers of earth's population that will be wiped out. They will have died before Jesus returns. Not to mention the billions and billions and billions of people who have already passed, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, your ancestors, who have already died and their eternal destiny was determined at the point of their death. But for those still alive at the arrival of Jesus, they're being spoken of here in verse 32 and verse 33. And those alive will include both the saved and the unsaved, and Jesus refers to them by sheep and goats, two separate people groups. And if there's any part that has a parable to it, it's this component, this description. When all the nations have been gathered before him, all the people groups, Jesus will separate them as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, verse 32. In the ancient Middle East, it's not uncommon, and even today, for herdsmen to keep their goats with their sheep during the day while they're grazing. They share pasture together. But goats have a reputation for being a little unruly. I don't know if you know much about goats. Some of you own goats and you know exactly what I'm talking about. They will take your legs out from underneath you if you turn your back on them. I've had goats in my past. I've had experience with them. If they see their own reflection in the door of your car, they will take on that other goat that they see and do damage to your door. And they may think that your hood is a nice climbing rock. And they may leave hoof prints. Just trust me on what I'm talking about. Goats can be unruly. And they don't always rest well with sheep. So at the end of the day, a herdsman, so that his sheep will rest and the goats will do what goats do, He will separate them. And Jesus says here, in a similar way, he's going to separate the sheep, which are the believers, to his right. He's going to separate the goats, which are the unbelievers, to his left. And the reason he uses the image of right and left is because in the Old Testament, part of the imagery was if you had the blessing of God, that was represented by the right side or the right hand of God. That's the place of blessing. But the place of rejection was the left side of God, 
or the left of God. That's the place of rejection. So move forward with me, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Remember, we're talking about at the second coming, that those who became believers in Jesus during the tribulation, at that point, they're allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. And he goes on to say a reason why, and it may not be the reason you think. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you that to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. That's a comprehensive list. I mean, Jesus has a big list there. And when he makes his list, he then applauds. Wow, well done. He's applauding them for actions they carried out that were genuinely righteous deeds. But here's what many people miss. They miss that he prefaced the statement with saying, I want you to inherit something. I want you to receive, come and take something as a possession for you. Look with me on the screen at that statement, verse 34. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, especially that last part, from the foundation of the world. I find this absolutely fascinating, church, and mesmerizing. That two days before Jesus is crucified, just weeks before the church is explosively launched, Jesus is already anticipating a salvation by works mentality, which we are so prone to. All across the planet, we have created religions by which you work your way to God, by which you make yourself good enough for God. And Jesus is already anticipating that people are going to think that way. And that's exactly what people make of verses 35 through 45 over the centuries. See, in our humanness, we read these verses and we come to a conclusion. <laughs> okay, if I feed people and I, I take care of the sick and I visit people in prison, if I put clothing on people who are really hurting, then God's going to like me. And he's going to let me in based on my performance. But we know that the Bible makes it equally clear, Jesus makes it equally clear that we do not inherit the kingdom of God based on good works. It's not a truth of Scripture. We don't get to get in because we're good. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not because of works that I've done, my righteousness is as filthy rags according to the Bible. And the Bible never contradicts itself. Let me just show you Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I know many of you grew up in church and you know this. Some of you are brand new to church. Look at this statement. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for 
good works. So I love this. I absolutely love this component of this parable. God goes out of his way just before the crucifixion to emphasize the inheritance of the kingdom was determined in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. Come, receive the kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to give his list. In other words, before you ever walk this planet, church, before you could ever do good works, God already laid a plan, prepared a plan, executed a plan, and then drew you into the plan, not because of your works, but because he chose you. Like two of you believe that. Because he chose you. Okay? That's the reality of Scripture. Look with me, Titus 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So here's a component you should really bear down on when you read that statement in Matthew 25. Just three words. Prepared for you. Prepared for you. What's Jesus doing? He's personalizing it, and he's stressing the reality of the election of God. From before the world was formed, God knew. God elected. God chose. You want to know more about that? It's called predestination. Go to Romans chapter 8. We spent some time in Romans. You go back to the website and look at the study in Romans chapter 8, and you'll learn a lot about predestination, perhaps more than you ever wanted to know. We're not going down that trail this morning. Hear this. Those who enter the kingdom do not do so on the basis of works. But Jesus said the basis is because you are blessed of my Father. Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. As a result of placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who can take away all sin, Hear this, that that means the actions that are applauded by Jesus in Matthew 25, those works are not the root of your salvation. They are the fruit of your salvation. You need to hear that again? The actions that he lists in Matthew 25, all those things of feeding, clothing, giving water to, Those are not the root of your salvation. In Matthew 25, those actions applauded by Jesus are the fruit of your salvation. It's what you do because you are saved, not to make yourself more saved. That's what Jesus is explaining here. Okay, so let's hit this list here real quickly. He mentions the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the one that's in prison. Here's where my mind goes. It immediately goes to the guy that was laying in the gutter in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says the priest walks by, the rabbi walks by, the Pharisee walks by, and they're all posers because they all say they're good with God and they totally ignore the guy in the ditch. And then along comes the Samaritan. And Jesus has the posers in front of him when he's telling that story. He's got the Pharisees right there. In that parable, Jesus asked those who claimed relationship with God, do your words match your actions? You say you're good with God. 
How are you doing with that? How's your life bearing that out? Do you notice as you read through that list, there is no mention of any monumental endeavors. There's there's no building of hospitals there. There's no discovering a cure for cancer. It's just everyday needs, the basics, the things that you watch people walking through, things that they're going through, meeting the needs, and I'm going to push this point, meeting the needs, especially of fellow believers. What does Jesus say in John 13? The world will know that you belong to me because of your love for one another. He says in Matthew 25, the least of these brothers of mine, I think he's really talking here about specifically believers in Christ. Yes, the world in general, humanity. But specifically, I think he's bearing down here on fellow believers in Christ. Kingdom people are those who meet needs because those works, because that fruit is the evidence of true faith. The women in the church going through the study of James, my wife's been leading the women of the church going through this study recently, have just this week are coming up on James 2. It's a hard passage. In James 2.17, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he really kind of hits this point hard. Look with me on the screen, James 2.15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body? Good question, James. What use is that? What use is it to say, I love you, but never do anything for that person? So he goes on to say, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead at being by itself. Rather than commentary from me, just hear it from somebody who's 20 years older than me, uh, Dr. MacArthur. He kind of summed it up this way. You see this quote on the screen. Scripture is very clear. The evidence of true salvation is not found in a past moment of decision, but in a continuous pattern of righteous behavior. He's not saying that you're saved because of the righteous behavior. He's saying there's a pattern. There's a pattern of righteous behavior in your life. So the response by those who are applauded by Jesus is really worth noting here before we wrap this up. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When when did we actually do that? See, the, the consistency of their life has been so humble, so non serving of themselves, their characteristic has been to serve in humility. And they appear to have forgotten about a lifetime of serving people who are in need. So Jesus has to tell them, these are the things that you did, and they're surprised that they're even worthy of being noticed by the Lord. So here's the way I would sum this up that we've just looked at so far. The master says, come into my kingdom. You who have chosen, been chosen of my father, your true relationship has been evidenced. It's been evidenced by the way you serve. There's been fruit in your life, the way that you especially served fellow believers. But what about those on his left? Here's where it gets really ugly. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Over the course of the 18 months of working through the parables, we've spent a lot of time talking about hell. We don't need to go back into that again this morning. Just know this, Jesus is talking here about eternal separation. 
He uses the same word for eternity of heaven that he uses for the word eternity of hell, ionos. It, it means eternal. You can't change it in any way. So eternal salvation and eternal condemnation. But to sum it up, he's talking about no fellowship, no comfort, no encouragement, no relief, utter darkness, wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. We've got the picture. And he says there's lack of evidence that there was ever any relationship. This is the judge making a judgment from the throne. And he makes this list again. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And I think there really will be a sense of desperation in their voice. Verse 45, then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And the response by those who are accursed is equally worth noting. They're just as surprised. They're just as surprised as those who inherit the kingdom as those who don't inherit the kingdom. When did we not? And the evidence is that they never belonged because there's no fruit and no fruit means they never did serve, they never did love, they never reached out to his own. And when they refused to care for genuine needs, actually showing no life change. Therefore, there's no relationship evidence. And they proved by the actions of their life they don't belong to him. So final question. Why use works as the measuring rod? If you don't get into heaven by being good, by doing enough good things, why would Jesus use that as the measuring rod here? The righteous activities that Jesus applauds here, the things that he says, yes, well done. He says that's measurable evidence of salvation and he celebrates them because they perform them really, really well. In 1 John, you find God asking a very hard question, similar to what James asked in James chapter 2. Let me show you the way that John recorded this question. 1 John 3, 17, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So God asks a hard question in 1 John, and he answers it in Matthew 25. If you've got the world's goods and you see someone in need, specifically your brother or sister in Christ, and you totally ignore them, how does the love of God abide in that person? And Jesus is saying, it doesn't. That's exactly what he's driving at here. It doesn't. There's, there's no relationship with God. It doesn't exist in someone like that. So Jesus uses works as a measuring rod. Hear this, church. Because these works are or are not a manifestation of the relationship. The works are or are not a manifestation if the relationship is real. 
And Jesus ends this hard way. Verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. First the ugly truth and then the beautiful truth to end with. Jesus does not condemn people to hell because they fail to do works well. He doesn't condemn them because they fail to do works well, just as he does not save because of good works. They're accursed by God because they've rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and therefore there's been no life change. They're still selfish, still hypocritical, saying one thing and doing the other. And a lifetime of rejecting Jesus has left them unable to truly do any righteous works. Did you notice as you're working through this, there's no gross sins mentioned there? There's no vile activities mentioned whatsoever? It's the same with the parable of the ten virgins last week. They've got their lamps, they're ready for the wedding feast, and the last thing you would call them is wicked. They weren't wicked in their behavior, but because they disrespected the king, they had no respect for the groom. They paid no honor to Jesus. There was no preparation. A person shut out of the kingdom is not condemned because of massive sin, but because of the lack of the relationship to the one who takes away sin, because all sin is known to God. Therefore, all sin has to be punished. Judgment for sin is inevitable. The difference is, who pays for your sin? You or Jesus? I vote Jesus. How about you? Who pays for it? Somebody's got to pay for it. The amazing privilege that we have as Christians is the punishment for all our sin has been placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Fantastic. Thank you, God. So he ends with his final statement, but the righteous. <laughs> this is you. This is you if you've been saying amen to this stuff. The righteous to eternal life for all eternity, glorified with the one who saved you. And those righteous ones, those ameners, they're going to discover the blessings will have only just begun after 10,000 years. When we've been there 10,000 years, we've only just begun to sing his praises. Sounds like the lyrics to a famous song to me. The reality is the best meal you've ever had, the best vacation you've ever had, the best sporting event you've ever been to, it pales in comparison to what you're going to experience for all of eternity, all the time. So Jesus says, you don't want to miss that, but you especially don't want to miss having me remove your sin so that you know that your destiny is secure. After this service, Joe Testa and Dave Schubert, two of the pastors here, are going to be over at the prayer room. If you need somebody to pray with you about these things that you've heard about, go to the prayer room. They would be honored to talk with you. If you're new to New Hope, I would be honored to meet you. I'll be right here at the front of the stage after the service. I'd love to talk with you. These things that you've heard this morning are precious to God. Therefore, they're precious to us. And so we don't hesitate to share this information with you. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ at New Hope. You need this truth.
I'm going to pray for you right now, and I'm going to ask that you would stand with me as I pray with you and ask for God's blessing on you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And Father, the only reason we can have peace is because we know Jesus. We know him as our Savior, our Lord, and our soon-coming King. So we've received the benefit of hearing your word this morning and, and knowing it better because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So God, use that now. Use this equipping to send us out to do your works of service. I pray for that in the matchless name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Have a powerful week, New Hope.